Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey everybody, Daniel here. Uh, before we get started with the latest episode of The Cannonball, we have a few, uh, just a few items to mention here. Uh, first up, uh, as always, The Cannonball is proud to be part of the Agora Podcast Network. That is a network of independently produced podcasts. Uh, these are not backed by any kind of major media outlets or anything like that. These are independent podcasts produced by dedicated, motivated people who are out here doing the kind of work that they want to do and that you want to listen to. Uh, so check out agorapodcastnetwork.com and check out some of our sister shows. Quality absolutely matters, and it especially matters for something you're going to use every day. And if you're like me, you use your headphones every day. Well, check this out. We are happy to let you guys know about a company that is dedicated specifically to headphones. This is Studio. They are based out of Sweden, uh, so you can actually find their URL is www.sudiosweden.com. That's uh, S-U-D-I-O-S-W-E-D-E-N.com. And check out all of their range of headphones. It is really phenomenal. They are all spectacularly engineered. Uh, They are... Uh, they are beautifully designed. I've actually been using uh, I've been using the tray, which is their newest model. Um, it is it is intended for those with an active lifestyle. It's uh, an earbud that also has uh, some extra uh, like an extra clip to hook around the ear to uh, comfortably yet securely sit in the ear. There, um, they also have full uh, full earphones, like full covering the ear earphones rather than earbuds. The Vasa Blay. Uh, apologies to any Scandinavian listeners. I do not know how to pronounce the uh, A with a little circle over it. Um, but these are uh, just phenomenal full ear headphones for those times when you want to listen to the cannonball and hear with absolute crystal clarity every sound that a baby or a cat makes in the background. And of course, to hear me talk about it, you might think these are going to cost you an arm and a leg, but they're actually very reasonably priced. Um, and what's even better is that you as a cannonball listener will be able to get them at an even more reasonable price. Just use promo code C A N N O N B A. LL for a 15% discount on your purchase of headphones from Studio Sweden. Uh, now, you'll note that that is spelled C-A-N-N-O-N-B-A-L-L. Um, that is the promo code. It is spelled differently from the show, and that is a, uh, that's a secret that only you guys are going to know. So no one can just roll up there, enter the name of the show, spell the way we spell it, and think they're going to get a discount. <laughs> no dice. So remember, promo code C-A-N-N-O-N-B-A-L-L. That's at studiosweden.com. 
Dot-com. Get yourself something nice. Get yourself some good headphones. You're going to use them every day. They might as well be high quality. They're going to last. You're absolutely going to love it. Use the promo code for 15% off. So now that you have your new uh, headphones, what are you going to listen to? Well, I'm glad you asked. There is a new podcast coming out that we are also very proud to tell you about. Uh, so the American national idea, it's not very old as far as national ideas go. Uh, there are, of course, much, much older conceptions of nationality out there. But even so, that national idea is steeped in tradition. The words we speak, the ideas we share, the the values we admire, the, the freedoms that we claim, uh, these are these all are active, rich topics. And there is a new podcast coming out, American History Tellers. That will be examining the events, the the times, kind of the, the headlines, the powerful people, the ordinary people who have throughout the the uh, what couple centuries of the American national idea shaped those ideas, values, the definitions of those freedoms. Uh, this is a tremendous podcast, guys. It's going to be fully produced. Uh, they'll have sound design, sound effects. Uh, scripts will be written by PhD historians, which. I mean, you know, uh, it's not going to be one of these fly-by-night operations like, uh, say, the Cannonball, although I guess, uh, well, Claude is actually a PhD, so I guess I should say it's not going to be one of those fly-by-night operations like when I open my mouth on the Cannonball. Um, but this is really exciting to me as a as a former history student, because uh, if you're in uh, sort of the PhD track, you you as a historian are going to have access to all the latest uh, the the latest trends and 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 currents in research the latest uh, archive discoveries, the latest you know primary source discoveries. This is really very exciting to, uh, to think of here. American History Tellers. Uh, I can't wait for this uh, to take a listen to this one myself. It's, it's upcoming, um, so it has not come out yet. It should be out around the time this episode goes out, though. Uh, but we are going to have a sample. Uh, there will be a sample episode of this podcast that should show up in the Cannonball feed if I get all my files correctly sent over to producer Josh. So hopefully I will have done that and you'll be able to uh, have a sample of American History Tellers. Uh, And now on with the show. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me to talk about Montaigne is my co-host, Daniel Doty. Daniel, what are we doing? Well, what what are we doing? We are... See, all right. Of (laughs) Of all the authors that we've read so far, I feel the most personal kinship with... Montaigne. And I'll, I'll tell you why. And, uh, and I think if, uh, if, if all y'all listened to our, uh, the last episode that Claude did with Matt, uh, which was absolutely terrific. Um, and Matt, of course, the, uh, just a spectacularly erudite guy, or at least the guy who always sounds like he's erudite. <laughs> of course, that gave is, us that a, is uh, Matt's talent. I I've known Matt since eighth grade <laughs> and that has been his talent since eighth grade. If he's not erudite, he sounds as if he is, 
enough so to convince you and that's good enough for me and i hope it's good enough for our audience exactly good enough for you oh yeah i i I was a total mark i took a hook line sinker um but don't worry (laughs) so um so if you did listen, you got a little bit of sort of the uh, biography of, of uh, Mr. Montaigne and the uh, sort of where he sits kind of in the development of French literature. And the reason why I feel so much kinship with Montaigne uh, in, in reading him is that I, as anyone who has spent any amount of time around me or having a conversation with me or uh, like my, my dear blessed long suffering wife actually trying to live and make a life with me. (laughs) I am an extremely distractible, tangential, lateral thinker. I am always ready to just dive off on a tangent when it comes to mind. I, I skim and surf around Wikipedia like a stone skipping across an endless sea. (laughs) That is how my mind works. It is a swirling, it is a swirling, uh, uh, plasmic mass of, of particles rattling around and finding connections with one another and then careening off of each other. And reading Montaigne is like that. It was like someone, I was reading a guy writing, you know, 500 years ago in a, in a society utterly unlike my own, um, in a, in a sort of social station, utterly unlike my own. Um, and yet found in him, a kindred spirit of a guy who sat around reading a bunch of books and just had a lot of thoughts about them books. Well, <laughs> you had proposed that he was perhaps the patron saint of the podcast. Exactly. As I, yeah, as we were reading, I, I thought like here he's he's sort of doing the cannonball project because what was he doing? He hold, he held himself up in his little tower and he had his library and he read all these classic works. He read the canon that he had received. He, he, he read the humanist canon of his age and then sort of blogged about it. <laughs> because of course they didn't have podcasts back then, but they did have blogs. And yeah. by that, I mean, you could, you know, set your quill to, to paper and, uh, or parchment, um, and, uh, and, you know, get to, get to writing. But it's, that's the feeling I very much got because he would, of course he's, he's, he's using, he's using sort of material from these ancient authors, you know, these Greek and Roman authors, which reminds him of a thing that he thought once He'll quote, you know, he'll make a block quote of, uh, you know, Seneca, who is one of his favorites, and use that to sort of as a jumping off point to talking about this sort of generalized notion he had about this other thing. And even in the midst of a single essay, he'll have almost four or five different points that he's trying to make about as many as, you know, five or six topics. And it's it's very rarely like even you sort of the, the – Taken as a whole, the essays, of course, are like we were talking a little bit before we started recording. There's not necessarily a through line you can draw. And there's a few. I mean, and, and Matt sort of talked about like you can you can tell you know you can the through line in Montaigne's thought is that kind of recapturing uh the 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 Stoicist uh, Epicurean modes of thought from the ancient world. Um but from when it comes to actually like reading through it which you so bravely did Claude. And I, I commend you for that. I, I honestly, I have, I have to admit, I ended up resorting to the skipping around method pretty early on. Hypocrite. Um, 
I've I've betrayed yeah, I've betrayed all of our listeners. I'm sorry. No, you know um, what? Okay, let, let's yeah. pause for a second and pull back. Uh, we were just talking about how in the hell are we going to take this on, and the only way that we could think to do it was to take it in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, Matt had said we were mad for trying to read it all through. And I think he's right because this is a book to dip into. Uh, mm-hmm. Every page has the t-shirt slogan or the coffee mug slogan. Yeah. And, and that's sort of how he approaches the world. Here's, and, and he's, yeah. and he was aware of it too. I, th- I, th- we, I think we ended up both highlighting this. We were talking in the chat earlier, <laughs> Yeah, but he, he said, and he introduces this, uh, I forget which essay it's in exactly. Um, but he's talking about a friend of his who is a painter who will, his sort of style is that he'll, he'll do the subject, like a portrait, you know, subject of the painting, but save a bunch of space around the margins and then fill up the marginalia with a bunch of like grotesques and little sort of, um, you know, chimeras and stuff like that. And, 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 and figures made up of bits and pieces from others. And so he says about himself and in truth, what are these things I scribble other than grotesques and monstrous bodies made of various parts without any certain figure or any other than accidental order, coherence or proportion. Yeah. And so he knows what he knows what he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) These are a bunch of squibs that Mm -hmm. I came up with. I hold myself in my tower. I thought as much as I could and here we go. But it, it it's also the conversation with himself. Mm-hmm. Like th- this is the thing that I noticed reading him kind of straight through. I got it through the first book and we'll take on the second book next time, which will probably be a little bit more coherent, I'm, I'm expecting. But he goes back and revises and he reads his old essays and he reads mm-hmm. what he's thinking and then thinks back on what he's thinking. So it's right. circular. It's it's all over the place. And yet, like you said, there are a couple of concerns that keep coming back again and again. And you can see him thinking and rethinking and working through it and kind of talking to himself. Absolutely. And I think that's what that was kind of what marks him out. We've we've talked before about how um, sort of in, in Bloom discussing the canon. And I think this is this is an instance where we we think he's on the right track mm-hmm. where he, he discusses how really it's a mistake to think of these works as being representative of their various times. Yeah. Because the, one of the reasons why a work will stand the test of time, why it will stand out from its context is because it is not representative of its time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it will come from its time. Of course, it will be informed by its time, but it is not representative of its time. And I think, the conversation with himself is what marks out Montaigne in these essays amongst the broader uh, humanist movement, which was going on, which was similarly, the the humanists were working from the same sort of corpus. Mm. Um, This was a, this was an intellectual movement, which is sort of, it goes hand in hand with the Renaissance. It's the more sort of letters side of the Renaissance, as opposed to the uh, sort of art side of the Renaissance. Um, and they're working with the same corpus of material, these, you know, these classical authors, these Greek and Roman authors. And for the most part, the humanists were working in, when they were writing, they were doing so in imitation, conscientious imitation of those writers. Mm-hmm. They were working, um, they were working in such a way that they were trying to mimic the voice, the cadence, the, uh, what you might call the preoccupations of the classical authors. 
Um, and in so doing, they basically they, they wrote a, a lot of work which was very which was full of pronouncements. You know, they were reading these ancient authors for their sense of authority, their authoritativeness. Mm-hmm. And so in their writing, they were they were putting out in imitation authoritative writing like I, you know, I am interpreting Aristotle and Aristotle is saying this. You know. <laughs> but what marks Montaigne out is that he's just there, he's like, Yeah, I don't know what to make of this, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm reading all this stuff and it's, it's very personal that the, the first person voice is in everything. He'll yeah. say like, I read this and I was moved to think of this. I thought this, I might be wrong, but I thought that such and such. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what marks it out. And I think that's what makes him so much more to me anyway, is so much more sort of, there's, there's more for a modern to latch on to. Then if you tried to like read Erasmus or something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. There's the thing that, you know, I, I guess as an educator or let's put educator in quotation marks, uh, the thing that struck me as an educator is his ideas on, on education. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to flip to where it is. One of the things that we agreed on is that what we should do in this episode is just flip around. Yeah. Because yeah. He, that, that seems to be how he works best. Yeah. And, um, and y'all, y'all at home are not going to be losing any of the effects. If, no, you're not. If, if we jump around, you're not, no, there's no spoilers. There's no, uh, and, and again, s- you, you, we won't be setting, you won't be missing any piece of context that would have been set up by another essay or anything like that. Well, to digress into a digression, my experience of reading this, I think, was in a weird way optimal. Uh, to get into the personal, I, I, I live in Manhattan and mm-hmm. I work in Queens, which basically, if you know New York geography, means I take a 20-minute subway south and then take about an hour of a subway west mm-hmm. and then take a 15 to 20-minute bus ride further west. So I, I've been reading this stuff more or less on the run, like get up at five, jump on the subway and just in the middle of commotion, in the middle of, um, you know, people jumping in, jumping off, going to work, doing whatever, uh, trying to get a, a sort of snatch of Montaigne here and there. And oddly, that seems to me to be the optimal position. You take it and run and work with what you got and then thread it into something. So what we've been talking about is just jumping in and reading some of the highlights. And Mm -hmm. you struck me when you, you were talking about how Montaigne is using this stuff and he has a, a, uh, an essay on education and on the optimal tutor and he writes about how um, how to use the information we have, which I think is extraordinarily relevant now. We're inundated with information. Yeah. We're inundated with, with all kinds of new information every minute of the day. And so this is, this is from that essay on um, – let me get back to the title – yeah, you can never quite find what the title is. It's <laughs> on educating children. Yeah. But he he says, let the tutor not merely require a verbal account of what the boy has been taught, but the meaning and the substance of it. 
Let him judge how the child has profited from it, not from the evidence of his memory, but from that of his life. Let him take what the boy has just learned and make him show him dozens of different aspects of it and then apply it to just as many different aspects, uh, just as many different subjects in order to find out whether he has really grasped it and Mm -hmm. made it part of himself, judging the boy's progress by what Plato taught about education. Spewing up food exactly as you have swallowed it is evidence of a failure to digest and assimilate it. The stomach has not done its job if, during concoction, it fails to change the substance and the form of what it is given. Um, I, he's, he's talking about a, a usefulness of the material that that hits home to my inner pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Look, what is all this book learning if all you do with it is spit it back up? That's right, nothing. It's just, it's just recite it. Yeah. Yeah. But if you do exactly what you described him as doing, taking it, wrestling with it, working with it, saying, okay, this is what I think about it, but at the end of the day, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. This is how it works for me. Yeah. That seems to me a, a, a much more useful way of, of thinking about education. Right. And a much more useful way of thinking about the, you know, the wisdom handed down from the ancients kind of, you know, which 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 was very taken very ponderously and seriously <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And I think that's one thing I do appreciate about Montaigne. Like the uh, one, one thing I, I, I do enjoy um, is his and just sort of as an example of kind of the broader attitude he was taking toward all this is that, again, he's very, he's very aware. Yeah. Um, it, it's a kind of, it's a very self-aware project that he's embarking on. Um, and he sort of makes mention as a sort of, a, a sort of, uh, tongue in cheek repost to any critics he might have that, uh, like, look, I'm just, hey, I'm just taking quotes from the ancient world, these authors that you hold in such high esteem, and explaining them a little more in our current context. So really, if you have anything problem with what I have to say, really you have a problem with what Seneca has to say. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was great, like a nice little cloud of squid ink that he has there. Well, that I, yeah, that's, that's, his sense of humor is, is fantastic. And that, that mm-hmm. those, those little sort of jibes in there, here and there, um, and that I think gets at our own and in some ways Bloom's own project. This is not about solid, you know, eternal wisdom and knowledge to be handed down as an mm-hmm. inert, you know, stone tablet. Yeah. It's rather something that necessarily mutates over time. Right. It's I I have inherited this and let me make of it, what I will from my own experiences. Um, On the one hand, he's not, we're going to be doing this all night on the one hand, on the other, (laughs) because that's Montaigne. (laughs) Yeah. On the one hand, he's not that arch conservative. These are the classics. These are what you must know. On the other hand, he seems to recognize how we need foundations. We're right. not really nilly floating in space chaotically. Uh, we need certain kinds of parameters in order to understand, know, and learn. And perhaps these classics can be those parameters. Yeah. And I, and I think that maybe, I mean, maybe the way to think of it might be that there's, I think he conceives of the, the classics, the received corpus, uh, that would be, you know, at the basis of the education for the child as raw material for yeah. your own mind after processing 
to process and build whatever you might like. Th- th- there is no blueprint. Like here, you hit the, the raw material is these, you know, the, the classical authors and all that, but there's no blueprint on what you have to build out of that. Yeah. And I think that's, I, th- I think maybe that's where, I think maybe that's where he's getting like, there's right. There's the kind of the, there's that circumscribed agreed upon uh, parameters. And yet there's also the, well, what use is that if we're all building the same gingerbread house? <laughs> Let's all yeah. build different gingerbread houses out of the gingerbread. To, to put a little uh, uh, holiday spin on on the, the proceedings here. Well, in in that same in that same essay, he says, "Anyway, these are my humors, my opinions. Mm-hmm. I give them as things which I believe, not as things to be believed. My aim is to reveal my own self, which may well be different tomorrow if I am initiated into some new business which changes me. I have not, nor do I desire, enough authority to be believed." I feel too badly taught to teach others. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I hate to say as a professional educator that that hits home, but, <laughs> right. but but that's he he strikes me as absolutely in line with American pragmatism. This yeah. and the early progressives, not the pejorative progressives as it's used by Fox News now, but the, right. the actual provi- progressives in the early part of the 20th century who acknowledged that there was a past way of thinking about things and also acknowledged that the present way of doing things, the present material conditions had changed. Mm-hmm. So how do we acknowledge the past? How do we work with that? How do we look towards future change, which is inevitable? Um I will not be the same me tomorrow. How do I negotiate that? And, and yeah. I think that's that's remarkable on on, on his part. Well, I think you know the, uh, there's of course the uh, he, he name drops Heraclitus in one of the I think it's one of the later essays. It's not necessarily in the first book, but of course Heraclitus is most famous for the the dictum I I cannot step in the same river twice. Exactly. And yeah, and I I think you're right. Like Montaigne is uh is he's very much. He's very much in that vein. I think actually I'm, I'm looking through the uh, the uh, on the education of children and there's and here's a wonderful quote that's an on the other hand. Like we're talking about <laughs> starting we're talking about starting with the same raw material and creating something uh, different out of that. Um, here's and I thought this was actually pretty lovely. Uh, here he is uh, discussing um, discussing sources, you know, discussing what you pull from. Yeah. Bees cull their several sweets from this flower and that blossom here and there where they find them, but themselves afterward make the honey, which is all and purely their own, and no more thyme and marjoram. So the several fragments he borrows from others, he will transform and shuffle together to compile a work that shall be absolutely his own. That is to say, his judgment, his instruction, labor, and study tend to nothing else but to form that. That's beautiful. Yeah, and that, isn't that lovely? It, well, that's <laughs> in, in in English. That's what we're taught to do, or at least in all the freshman writing programs, that's what we're taught to do: synthesize, mm-hmm. right. take the bits and pieces, make them into something with your understanding. Um, I and to digress, which is in the nature of Montaigne, <laughs> but um, here, you know, this is this is my frustration. Uh, I always hate. Professors outside of the humanities who give essays that are explain this or define that. Mm-hmm. It's like you want an encyclopedia article which does not do anything except regurgitate 
the idea. And so yeah. many times I find colleagues in other fields, they, they get frustrated. I, mm-hmm. I always hear, it, it always makes me mad when, um, when I hear other teachers complain about how students, how stupid their students are. Because and I do it myself. I'll I'll be honest. When we complain about how stupid our students are, what we're really complaining about is how we have failed to reach them, sure. and our own failures to design and implement a course that gets everybody to where they need to be. Right. Because um, you can because you can tell the difference between. Because I'll tell you right now, I, I don't consider myself that stupid. But I I was a very lazy student, and I think uh, as an instructor, you can tell the difference between laziness and oh, some sort of absolutely absolutely yeah. but yeah. um but there's such a thing as writing a bad assignment which is i have an idea in mind uh mm-hmm. i did not convey that accurately and my students did not do that so i'm going right. to fail them um right. Usually it's a definitional assignment, but what Montaigne is asking for is something that we in the humanities tend to value. Take what you've read, now apply it, synthesize it. How does this work? But I'd be remiss if I didn't read this one. Mm -hmm. Frequent commerce with the world can be an astonishing source of light for man's judgment. Now he's talking about how it's not just book learning. You have to know your own circumstances. You have mm-hmm. to know more about the world. It, it's not just what you take from the sources. It's what you take from what's around you. We are all cramped and confined inside ourselves. We can see no further than the end of our noses. When they asked Socrates where he came from, he did not say from Athens, but from the world. He whose thoughts were fuller and wider embraced the universal world as his city, scattered his acquaintances, his fellowship, and his affections throughout the whole human race, not as we do who only look at what is what lies right in front of us. When Frost attacks the vine in my village, my parish priest talks of God being angry against the human race. In his judgment, the cannibals are already dying of the croup. At the sight of our civil wars, who fails to exclaim that the world is turned upside down and that the day of judgment has got us by the throat, forgetting that many worse events have been known in the past and that, in thousands of parts of the world, they are still having a final time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So on the, on the one hand, it's a kind of cosmopolitanism. On the other, it's, well, things are terrible here, but they're going great in China. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that Honestly, that cosmopolitanism it really struck me especially the um i I don't know if you're if you're ready to switch gears and jump over you know as as we are in in montanian terms i don't know well hang on there's one last one before we get out of education sure uh this is let's jump to cosmopolitanism in in five seconds but i just love this one um it 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 speaks to how i would like to be as a teacher Mm -hmm. but not as how i am were our pupil's disposition so bizarre that he would rather hear a tall story than the account of a great voyage or a wise discussion, that at the sound of the drum calling the youthful ardor of his comrades to arms, he would turn aside for the drum of a troop of jugglers, that he would actually find it more delightful and pleasant to return victorious, covered with the dust of battle, than after winning a prize for tennis or dancing, then I know no remedy except that his tutor should quickly strangle him when nobody's looking or apprentice him to make fairy cakes in some goodly town, even if he were the heir of a duke, following Plato's precept that functions should be allocated not according to the endowment of men's fathers, but the endowment of their souls. 
<laughs> what do you do with someone who's dumb? Yeah. Uh, and what he seems to have in mind is the, the stupidity of the extraordinarily rich. Yeah. And I, I just love that. Look, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a dunce and you'd rather do dunce work. Yeah. Maybe go do it. Yeah, it's a kind of um, it's 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 a kind of uh, crude meritocracy that he has there, which is which I think is kind of an interesting from that biographical standpoint because uh, you know Montaigne himself was he he was of the gentlemanly class he he was mm-hmm. of the nobility but only recently he was a second generation nobleman yeah yeah um, second generation and uh, interestingly uh, actually to my mind given the uh, the religious form foment of his times, his mother was of uh, converted Sephardic Jewish extraction. Yep. Basically her family were refugees from the <clears throat> intensely and insistently Catholic Reconquista <laughs> uh, going on in Iberia, which had actually, that had sort of reached its, its apogee a couple of generations before Montaigne, uh, Montaigne was, uh, was born and was writing. You, um, you sound like someone who had done an episode of the Lesser Bonapartes on the Reconquista. <laughs> uh, well, we did, we did a, a seven-part series on on Muslim Spain and and its and its downfall. So I, I got to learn a lot about that, yeah. which is absolutely fascinating. I recommend everybody out there. Like, you don't necessarily have to listen to that podcast series, but please learn what you can about the phenomenon of Muslim Spain and the Reconquista and the interaction between Muslim-dominated uh, Iberia and Catholic-dominated Iberia. It is phenomenal. It goes directly into the expansionary uh, sort of policy and imperial ambitions that were at work in the Age of Discovery with the, the kingdoms of Portugal and Castile and Aragon. And anyway, I, I'm digressing. Point well, being. Well, uh, you're too <laughs> modest to say it. I'm going to urge everyone to please go listen to that because you and Glenn did an amazing job on that whole series. That, oh, thank that you so was- much. That was wonderful. Yeah, and, and as long as you're over there, keep listening. Glenn is keeping the uh, course. I, I I bowed out um, uh, a couple of years ago now, but uh, Glenn has been keeping the, the torch strong over there. So yeah, listen, it's yeah, terrific work. work. Um, but anyway, it's just to, uh, <laughs> but that's funny that that kind of crude meritocracy is at work there because that's kind of, I, I would imagine Montaigne must have because he ran in very highfalutin circles. Yep, despite being of rather modest extraction himself. And I'm sure he must have sort of felt a sort of keen, you know, I'm, I'm certain he was looked down upon by many of the, of the people that he, he sort of ran with and sort of, you know, just sort of feeling like, Hey, you you know what? There are idiots at every level of society. And if, you know, if you're, if your precious Dauphin is a, is a dunce, better suited to dunce work, let him go apprentice, (laughs) you know, with, with the local, you know, chamber pot Smith. You know. But he he also has this one, and and this okay. Matt was saying this, and, and I think he was right. There's a Montaigne for everybody, and mm-hmm. every once in a while, I find okay. You can find the Romantic Montaigne, you can find the Enlightenment Montaigne, you can find the medieval Catholic Montaigne. He's there. Uh, you can find the postmodern Montaigne. You can find the this Montaigne. You can find the that Montaigne. But this just struck me as so so much a piece of Rousseau by punishing boys for depravity before they are depraved, you make them so. 
Mm. Um, It's just this one throwaway line in the thing on education where he's talking about how excess punishment leads people to believe that they deserve punishment. And it's – it it predates and anticipates Rousseau's psychology of – what makes a person, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Rousseau, right. Maybe if we're still alive at some point, we'll get to Rousseau, but Rousseau in his autobiography writes about, uh, how he felt himself to be a horrible beast because this horrible man he was apprenticed to treated him with suspicion as if he was a horrible beast and he began to act according to the suspicions. If mm-hmm. nothing will appease this guy, then this is how I will behave. Uh, Montaigne seems to anticipate that. And this is, this is absolutely awful. But, um, a couple of years ago, it, I, I've seen this in action. I, I teach in, yeah. in mostly, um, non-white students and mm-hmm. I had an African-American student who um, he was the sweetest young man I'd ever met in my life and he um, it was this class I was teaching that was high school students who were teaching taking college uh, level courses and he was he was one of my top runners just the most mm-hmm. devoted and everything and um he, you know, we were talking in class one day about social expectations and he was saying, yeah, every time I, I get on the subway in Manhattan, I see white women grabbing their purses mm. like I'm yeah. a threat and yeah. it, it makes me feel strange about myself and I, I don't know how to process that. And it, 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 that was Rousseau in action. That was Montaigne in action. Yeah, I couldn't understand how anybody would see this kid as a threat, but it really struck home in in that very honest, personal, human way. And God bless him, he didn't take that to heart. He said, "I know who I am." Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. I think that speaks also. I mean, to get back to Montaigne, I think that also speaks back to Montaigne. You keep ahead of who you are you or or you keep your head on and you understand and comprehend who you are and you know that you're not those social expectations right and and that's the thing like he recognizes like it's it's honestly it's it's impossible not to comport oneself partly in in accordance to how one's expected to behave i mean that's honestly like that that's kind of what social conditioning is yeah um it's just, it's just a necessary part of it all. But yeah, I think you're right. Like that, that kind of developing enough of a sort of inner compass to navigate that yeah, uh, becomes, becomes essential. Yeah. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And and that seems to be part of what his project is. Uh, on the one hand, he capitulates to certain rules and regulations, <laughs> but on the other, he is quite cosmopolitan. And would you like to talk about the cannibals? Yeah, absolutely. I thought um, that's where you, where you were going. That's, that's absolutely the- where I'm going. Right. Um, so probably one of the most famous essays in this collection is called uh, "Of Cannibals." And that's a pretty sensational name. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I and I and I like launched into it. It's like, oh, okay. What are we gonna get? What are we gonna get into here? And for one thing, it's a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating document because of this was written at a time. This was less than a century after uh, the the first Colombian expeditions that put Western Europe in. Uh, what we might call like, you know, repeated knowing contact with the new world. Um, we don't have to get into how the Vikings got there first. We don't have to get into, I'm anytime anyone says Columbus discovered the new world. I'm like, Oh, well that must've been news to the people who were there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But, uh, but anyway, this, those Colombian expeditions established consistent back and forth contact between the new world and the old. And that was less than a century before Montaigne was writing. This was something that was still being digested and grappled with in the intellectual fields of the time and in, in, in Europe, this was, it's, it's really difficult to understate just how earth shattering it was yeah. that there were huge, enormous parts of the world that those ancient masters knew nothing about <laughs> all these ancient, you know, authorities that were basing this humanism on. Yeah. They didn't know shit. Yeah, <laughs> about this stuff. But but you'll see sometimes it is like, uh, you know, Montaigne actually mentions like, uh, you know, some people trying to shoehorn the Atlantis, you know, Plato's Atlantis myth. Yeah. So yeah like, yeah. oh, well, he must have been talking about that. Like in Montaigne's like, no, 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 no. Don't worry. Yeah. But this 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 uh, this whole essay of cannibals is sort of an extended meditation on the new world. And and the like you mentioned, that cosmopolitanism, that kind of. Not, not even a relativism because he still has a kind of he's working with a set of moral precepts yeah but he is not working with the kind he's he's stepping outside of the kind of knee-jerk chauvinism which absolutely marked the vast majority of interactions between western european peoples and the peoples of the new world well absolutely um, but he also he sort of verges on the kind of this. This is this is also the time of the uh, the the myth of the noble savage, right? And and but there he is, doesn't there, he, he he toes the line on that. He comes close right, to that, but right. he doesn't quite capitulate to that either. 
Right. Um, that, it does seem like an actual good faith effort to comprehend a people, you know, a, or a set of peoples who have their own set of traditions and contexts that he does not have access to, but that they do. Um, yeah. and what's also interesting is that actually, um, I, I was not really super aware of this. Uh, he opens up the, uh, the, the essay or not, not at the very top, but very soon after, uh, by talking about, uh, it was, uh, Antarctic France is the <laughs> land that he's talking about. And I read that and I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And so I looked it up and of course, you know, Arctic and Antarctic, um, really just means like Arctic is North Antarctic is opposite North South. Uh, so this was new South new France, but this was what we know today as Brazil. Yeah. Um, this was a sort of an early claim on what, what is today Brazil, which the Portuguese very quickly subsumed <laughs> in yeah. their, yeah. in their, uh, their, their, their colonial, uh, ambitions. But th- this was the part where like French, uh, or I guess we should say, it, you know, Explorers under the employ of the French crown, uh, because, of course, we can talk about French explorers and Spanish explorers and English explorers. Almost all these guys were actually Italian sailors. Um, (laughs) But I think actually in this case, it was an actual French extracted sailor, maybe Breton. But anyway, um, but he he basically like he knows a guy who knows a guy who saw this stuff. Yeah. Um, And so he's sort of giving almost an ethnological report about it. And I think the, the crux, the... The uh, and most of it, you know, it's called of cannibals, um, and really, it's also an extended meditation on the idea of barbarians versus civilized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he and he does mention, you know, he, he does go through that. Like, look, the term barbarian was just whatever the Greeks and Romans said weren't them. Yeah, it has it has no <clears throat> connot- It should have no connotation beyond that. And which is, I was honestly surprised to read in someone, you know, in, in the midst of the Renaissance. Which is, of course, the you know the the age of the most just you know genuflecting as much as you possibly could at the Greco-Roman world, bringing that up and being like, ah, eh, you know, look, that's just whatever they called someone who wasn't them. Yeah, it, it shouldn't have any pejorative sense, you know, attached to it. Um, but uh, but it does mention of cannibals, and so there is an episode of cannibalism, which he does describe, and and here's a passage I'm going to read, and I think this is really really indicative of the the Montanian approach. And I really loved it uh, reading it. Uh, he describes sort of a, 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 a ritual uh, which these people of Antarctic France would deploy on an enemy of some of an enemy, enemy tribe they had captured. They would, uh, they would quickly kill him with their, with their swords, you know, they're sort of, uh, uh, which actually he describes as being made of a very hard wood, which they sharpened to the point of like, you know, being able to hold like a knife edge. Um, so they kill him with their swords. And Montaigne says, after that, they roast him, eat him amongst them and send some chops to their absent friends. They do not do this as some think for nourishment as the ancient Scythians, as the Scythians anciently did. Actually, they didn't. Anyway, go <laughs> they did not do this for nourishment as the ancient Scyth- as, as the Scythians anciently did, but as a representation of an extreme revenge, as will appear by this. 
that having observed the Portuguese, who were in league with their enemies, to inflict another sort of death upon any of them they took prisoner, which was to set them up to the girdle in the earth, to shoot at the remaining part till it was stuck full of arrows, and then to hang them. They thought those people of the other world, as being men who had sown the knowledge of a great many vices amongst their neighbors, and who were much greater masters in all sorts of mischief than they, did not exercise this sort of revenge without a meaning, and that it must needs be more painful than theirs. They began to leave their old way and to follow this. I am not sorry that we should here take notice of the barbarous horror of so cruel an action, but that seeing so clearly into their faults, we should be so blind to our own. I conceive there is more barbarity in eating a man alive than when he is dead, in tearing a body limb from limb by racks and torments, that is yet in in perfect sense, in roasting it by degrees, in causing it to be bitten and worried by dogs and swine, as we have not only read but lately seen, not amongst inveterate and mortal enemies, but amongst neighbors and fellow citizens, and which is worse under color of piety and religion, than to roast and eat him after he is dead. Yeah. Here he is. He's talking about, and, and the thing is, He's speaking from experience when he says that he has seen this kind of yeah. torture and tearing apart of people alive under color of piety and religion. That's what was going on in France at the moment. This was their wars of religion, which were intensely brutal yeah. uh, in a way that honestly is kind of papered over. <laughs> like you, you, you hear all about like even – I mean honestly, you don't really hear about it unless you're like – unless you're deep in the history weeds right, really, that right, you hear of right. the Thirty Years' War. You hear the barbarities of the Thirty Years' War. And even me, I had actually not understood the barbarities of the French wars of religion, which were occurring while Montaigne was writing. And that was part of why he was saying, on the other hand, on the other, so he would not be burned at the stake by one side or the other. But this was such a marvelous passage to me. Yeah. The fact that he, like, in this report, he notes that, like, you know, these, uh, these you know native american people these amerindians of brazil clearly they weren't doing these you know horrible cannibalistic rituals in order to just be cannibals they were doing it to express their contempt and mastery over their enemies and when they saw the portuguese doing likewise and knowing that the portuguese had sort of better mastery of the arts of cruelty they decided like, well, if we're, gonna, if we're going to try to express our revulsion and our domination over these people, we should do like these Portuguese are doing because they're yeah. way better at doing that than we are. Exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, that's I, – I had that passage highlighted as well. What a wonderful passage to point out that – OK. This gets back to what we were just talking about. He's not mm-hmm. – Exactly. Oh, those noble savages, as the romantics will do, you know, right. several generations later. Um, he's looking at other cultures in relation to his own and right. in relation to the interactions between them and pointing out the ways not that X culture is bad, but how does that culture reflect back on ours? Right. And not, not just like, what is this I, interaction? I, and I thought that was a very interesting perspective that he's taking the almost sort of, uh, I, I don't have the anthropological vocabulary for it, but an almost functionalist <clears throat> approach mm-hmm. to examining these behaviors. Like he's not just out there saying like, Oh, what, what a horrible, barbarous, awful thing they're doing. He's thinking to himself now, why would someone do that? Right. Right. What is the social reasoning behind that action? And that, 
honestly is surprising to hear from a European <laughs> nobleman of the well, 16th century. <laughs> it's it's surprising to hear from a 21st century American. <laughs> That's true also. <laughs> this, that is very true. But, um, yeah. but I love the, the conclusion to that chapter. Uh, I had a very long talk with one of them. But I used a stupid interpreter who was so bad at grasping my meaning and at understanding my ideas that I got little joy from it. When I asked the man who was a commander among them, our sailors calling him a king, what advantage he got from his high rank, he told me that it was to lead his troops into battle. Asked how many men followed him, he pointed to an open space to signify as many as it would hold, about four or five thousand men. Questioned whether his authority lapsed when the war was over, he replied that he retained the privilege of having paths cut for him through the thickets in their forests so that he could easily walk through them when he visited villages under his sway. Not at all bad, that. Ah, but they wear no breeches. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, he's doing that. That compare contrast. <clears throat> what is royalty mm-hmm. among the so-called savages? Uh, it is pragmatic. Yeah, like I, I, I think that's what he's looking to and saying. Look what, look what they do. Look what we do. Yeah. What is the privilege? It's the privilege of commanding men in battle and doing it well. Like, and what was – yeah. well, I think another thing that was interesting in uh, in the essay earlier, he uh, makes the comparison between the quote-unquote civilized peoples and these barbarians and cannibals as making the distinction between a sort of cultivated, like sown uh, agricultural field – Mm-hmm. And a wild meadow or forest. Yeah. And the, and making the point that like, look, the, you know, th- this might seem, it, it, it's, I, I wish I had, you know, again, I, if I had more of a grounding in the, uh, the ideology of nature of, <laughs> of the Renaissance, which I'm sure many dissertations have been written about, um, I, I could better explain this, but basically he's making the point that, um, that if there are such a thing as natural laws to govern nature and man, then surely those peoples who are most – so he's basically saying that like, look, these peoples that we think of as being uncivilized are in fact kind of the most civilized if you think of civilization as comporting a society most closely to the laws of man and nature. Yeah. And yeah. And, and so with this kind of uh, – it's it's uh, I almost lost the thread of where I was going with all this, uh, but but it's, well I think oh but that, sh- that should be said that he's he's sort of making a case for a more what we might call a natural monarchy yeah. a natural authority in that these these headmen that he's talking about sort of when describing like well how does a commander of your society work he's not sitting behind and issuing orders to everyone he's at the front. Yeah leading yeah. them toward what they're doing and taking the risk himself. And he's there at the front of it. And, and, and Montaigne does seem to be saying like, this is here then is sort of the natural. Here's what natural kingship is. Right. What do we have? <laughs> yeah. A series of genuflections. I mean, right, he writes right. that in a bunch of right, the other right. essays about how, 
irritating it is to have this extraordinarily ornate, polite society where if you uh, bow in the wrong way to the wrong person, then you get killed. Right. What is that? Um, as, okay. as contrasted to this very practical, like, look, you do a good job leading people into battle and, you know, and we'll make life easier for you by cutting a path for you to go where you want to go. so i I, yeah okay so i want to move so we've talked about the cosmopolitan montaigne we've talked Mm -hmm. about sort of the the moral relativist uh montaigne i want to talk for a second about the the bizarrely personal montaigne Um, please do this this, well (laughs) it's not as bizarrely personal as as i suspect we'll get in a little bit but this is from the essay how we weep and laugh at the same thing this is just one thing he he's arguing uh, about how unpredictable the emotions are mm-hmm. and one of the things that i really admired about montaigne okay when you read about stoicism and you read about stoics you think uh, or or at least i think of um the bullshit alpha nerd male I am all, I am right. all logic. I do right. not let emotion into my work. That that kind emotion of, is weakness. The kind yeah. of yeah. And and Montaigne keeps coming back again and again. No, of course he he has at one point uh, this line about how whenever I hear a gun go off, I jump because I've been in battle. I know yeah. what they do, and how it's stupid not to. Be scared. Right. I mean, like at, at certain points, you're going to have to be. Uh, it's not about not feeling anything. It's about moderating. And that's right. what I thought was was kind of um, – was really sort of interesting. It's all logic except let's be logical in our application of logic. It's right. Not- well, and, and I think something I, I always like to point out is that the – so the, the denigration of emotion in favor of logic, what, what you really – what's really going on there is that you're the emotional like that is an emotion itself is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah. That, that is the emotion, the emotional, ba- you're always, always, always as a human being going to have an emotional background to whatever thought process is going on. That's just how it is. And, and I think, I, I guess I should say uh, apologies to my brother, Jacob. Uh, I'm going to make an example of him. Uh, and if he's listening, I don't think he listens, but uh, if he does, I, I apologize in advance. Um, but he, he has sometimes been accused of not being an emotional guy. Uh, he is a, uh, he's a, an astrophysicist by, by training and by, uh, and by uh, doctorate at this point. Um, I'm sorry, astroparticle physicist. Oh, he, he's, wow. a particle, okay. he's a particle physicist, specifically in how particle physics can be applied to astronomy. Um, but you know, sometimes like, you know, uh, he's the kind of guy that you, you know, might be accused of not being, uh, of being unemotional and at the same, but I have to say like, you know, actually though, he's an extremely emotional man. He's an extremely emotional man because emotions that are strongest for him are emotions of discovery, emotions yeah. of satisfaction with uh, with the integrity of, of, of data that he's been able to get the, the emotion, the thrill of emotion that comes with insight. Yeah. Those are all emotional states. Those are emotional yeah. states that happen to be associated with a very, what we might call rational field, but any human being engaging in any activity is doing so in part because they are motivated by emotional states. That's just yeah. how it's going to be. 
And I, I've even had a, a, a psychologist tell me um, we learn through emotion, and mm-hmm. that's why I, perhaps it undermines our own project. But online learning, remote learning, is often not the best way because we need the emotional connection to the teacher or the mentor because otherwise mm-hmm. we don't make that leap in the learning. Yeah. So I, 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 yeah, I can believe that. <laughs> as, as someone who got his master's in library science via mostly remote learning, let me tell you, <laughs> it was not an emotional experience. <laughs> but that's, I, I think that speaks to that, that mentorship relationship. And that also speaks to uh, a pragmatic stoicism. It, yeah. You can't negate emotion. It's, it's always there. And to try to do so is a foolishness. Yeah. But he, he's writing about how sometimes we have different reactions to things and you may laugh at something very sad. You may cry at something very touching. Mm-hmm. It just happens. It's whatever. And he's trying to think through, well, why is it that we react, react the way they do or the re- we react the way we do? And he's got a great line in there about how – Sometimes our immediate emotional reactions do not stand for uh, how we actually feel. Mm-hmm. And he says, <clears throat> when I rail at my manservant, I do so sincerely with all my mind. My curses are real, oh, not no feigned. <laughs> right. But once I cease to fume, if he needs help from me, I'm glad to help him. I turn yeah. over the page. When I call him adult or a calf, I have no intention of stitching such labels onto him forever, nor do I believe I am contradicting myself when I later call him an honest fellow. No one characteristic clasps us at purely and universally in its embrace. If only talking to oneself did not look mad, no day would go by without my being heard growling to myself against myself, you silly shit. <laughs> but I do not intend that to be a definition of me. Um, we we change our minds constantly. We get irritated mm-hmm. by all kinds of things. We 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 have these outbursts, and yet they're not necessarily definitional. They're not right. how we. The immediate flux of emotion is not what defines the situation or the person. It's just the outburst. Right. And I, and I think what's interesting is that this kind of he's, – he's pushing back against the notion of a kind of a, – a, and I might be reading too much into it. Let me know if I'm reading too much into it. I don't think you are because I, I think I know where you're going with this. He's pushing back against the notion of a unitary self? Yes. That's exactly it. Okay, right, which was which was big, <laughs> which was big in the Renaissance <laughs> and in the Enlightenment. That was huge. Um, but right, th- th- this idea that there is one, there is one conscious process, and again, it's it's anachronistic to even use the word conscious when we're talking about any kind of theory of mind with was going on in this uh, in this time. But he's pushing back against the idea that there was one, one spiritus. One animus, as they might have said in their in their doggerel Latin, uh, which is in control of everything. He's recognizing the the lived experience, the fact that you're buffeted at all times by yeah. conflicting impulses, by these waves that come over you and then recede. And my goodness, will we need to, you know, just 
accept that fact. <laughs> Understand yeah. that that's what we are as people. Yeah, it's okay. At some point next year, we're going to get to Milton, and I'm going to point this out when we get to to Satan. Is part of what makes Satan fallen is his inconsistency. That he keeps changing his mind or convincing himself of the other or doing this or doing that. And in Milton, that is innately the state of fallenness. And it gets right back to what you were talking about, this this Renaissance ideal of the stable self, the coherent mm-hmm. self. But what, what I find human in Montaigne is the acceptance that we're not an absolutely stable self. We respond to the situation that we're in. Mm-hmm. And, and we respond perhaps in semi-consistent ways, but there's no one definition of how you will respond. There's right. no one definition to who you are or what you will be in any given situation. I mean, that goes back to the very first essay, which is all about how to conduct yourself in battle when you're losing. <laughs> right. <laughs> he goes through several different examples and says, well, this guy did this and it worked out great. This other guy did the same thing and it killed him. Yeah. This other guy did this and it worked out great. This other guy did this same thing, killed him. This guy did this. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's almost like that, that Homer, the Simpson, Homer Simpson, um, talking crusty, the clown doll, you know, <laughs> Right. You know the the stupid joke I'm going to, but you know, I'll sell you this doll. Great, but the doll is cursed. That's bad. That's bad. <laughs> but it comes with a free uh, frozen yogurt. That's good. The froger is also cursed. That's bad. It's it's this back and forth. You can't you know move away from it. And what he concludes at the end is, well, I guess it just depends on circumstance. There's no universal. And and that seems to be if there is one universal thing in Montaigne, it's that there is no universal. You're just fluctuating through through the whole, right? But but funnily enough, I my experience of reading this. I mean, this is something that um, we, you know, I I think we keep coming back to with this project is what is the experience of reading it, yeah. and. Even though the first 50 or so pages felt in some ways like a slog, once you get into conversing with Montaigne, because reading him really does mm-hmm. feel like conversing with him, yeah, it, it becomes very fun and very funny. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've read a book of philosophy or whatever the hell this is that <laughs> – that I, I don't know what this is, but I, I don't think I, I've ever read anything like this that, that had me just sort of smiling or laughing to myself like this. Yeah. Uh, well, I think honestly, I, I, it's, it's terribly anachronistic, both in the sense of talking about Montaigne and the fact that we're in the year 2017. But I, I honestly, it's a, it's a series of blog posts. Yeah. That's it's a series of mid two thousands blog posts, complete with quote texts from other blogs, which is Seneca and Plato. <laughs> well, that's, I I think that's the way to to think about it. But okay, the way he is like, all right, let's let's do a Montaigne reading of Montaigne. Yeah. Uh, the way he is like twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, whenever this is released, is 
that he is like a series of blog posts, but the way he is unlike is that he is not anxious. Mm-hmm. The we're we're inundated, and, and I don't know how he does it. I I can't imagine what it must be like to live in his time. Like as, as you were saying, the the religious civil wars were at his doorstep. Or, or apparently at his doorstep nearly every other day. There's yeah, always this, an outbreak. There's always a flare-up. Absolutely. This was really, um, honestly, the uh, – and I can, I can actually tie this into a, a long history of uh, uh, religious, uh, religious nonconformity in the south of France. But the, the, the Huguenot movement, the, the, the Calvinist and uh, – the, well, the Protestant and specifically Calvinist, uh, increasingly Calvinist movement in France was heavily concentrated in – the south and west of France. So basically what we would know as Provence, Languedoc, and Bordeaux. Bordeaux and Aquitaine being where Montaigne had his stomping grounds. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, he was, he was, he was sitting in the cockpit as a middling nobleman vacillating in loyalty between the primary <laughs> Protestant claimant of the throne and the primary Catholic claimant of the throne in an extremely chaotic age. I would honestly be tearing my hair out every day. <laughs> what, yeah. the, what, the, what the hell was going to happen to me? <laughs> it, it, it's, it must be comparable to living in a world where Donald Trump is the president. <laughs> that's, that's true. Every day we wake up to new, uh, you know, new and amazing violations of norms uh, yeah. at, at, at all sides. Yeah. And it, this is this is the affective reading that I had was I, I don't know why I have PTSD. Perhaps it's because uh, Donald Trump is the president. Perhaps it's because I'm raising a one year old. Perhaps it's because both of those things are happening at the same time mm-hmm. as I'm teaching five courses and tutoring four hours on the weekend. <laughs> I experience life, and I live in, in New York, and and I experience life as it's it's insane. I don't know how I'm doing this. I don't know how I'm stitching myself together. I don't know how I'm keeping my brain together. I don't know how I'm functioning because every five seconds I need to respond to something. Mm-hmm. It's it's a constant inundation of distraction, insanity, craziness, and the near certain death of my child who's about to do something that will will doubtlessly end his life. (laughs) Um, And yet having these moments on the subway, reading this man meditating on God knows what is extraordinarily calming. And it puts things into perspective. He, he has the one essay uh, it, it's sort of okay on the length of life. I cannot accept the way we determine the span of our lives. I note that wise men shorten it considerably compared to the common opinion. And then he goes on what madness it is to expect to die of that failing of our powers brought on by extreme old age and to make that the target for our life to reach, which it is the least usual, the rarest kind of death. We call that death alone a natural death. 
as if it were unnatural to find a man breaking his neck in a fall, engulfed in a shipwreck, <laughs> surprised by plague or pleurisy, and as though our normal condition did not expose us to all of those harms. Let us not beguile ourselves with such fine words. Perhaps we ought rather to call natural anything which is generic, common to all, and universal. Dying of old age is a rare death, unique and out of the normal order, and therefore less natural than the others. It is the last, the uttermost way of dying. The farther it is from us, the less we can hope to reach it. It is indeed the limit beyond which we shall not go, and which has been prescribed by nature's law as never to be crossed. But it is a very rare individual law of hers, which makes us last out till then." It is an exemption which she grants as an individual favor to one man in the space of two or three centuries, freeing him from the burden of those obstacles and difficulties which she strews along the course of that long progress. Therefore, my opinion is that we should consider whatever age we have reached as an age reached by few. <laughs> um, it's it's another thing that that Montaigne keeps coming back to. It's it's sort of like we, when talking about Montaigne, I think we circle through Montaigne, mm-hmm. and one of the things he circles back to is is death and mortality, um, how close it is, and if we can always keep it in mind, it makes trivial things seem just as trivial as they are. Yeah, he he has a whole section on funerals. And how ridiculous it is, on the one hand, to plan for this over-elaborate funeral where your whole life will be justified and all this other stuff. <laughs> on the other hand, it's it's ridiculous to say, well, I don't want any funeral, just you know, burn me out back and so on and so forth, because that does not give any um, – consolation to your mourners that does not right. help them mourn. Yes. So you have to find a way to have a decent funeral that doesn't celebrate you too much but allows people to do you know what they will. Yeah. I uh I, okay, to get back to the personal and it's Montaigne, so hell, let's not or, or why not? <laughs> but I I remember um my my dad when he was dying, he had cancer and, mm. and it took about 5 years uh, yeah. for it to, to really catch up to him. But in, in that last year, he knew and, and we all knew and we were with him at the diagnosis. And, and the thing he always came back to was, um, just throw me in a pine box. Mm-hmm. And, and that was his, his sort of Southern rural way of saying, I don't want anything fancy. I don't want, mm-hmm. um, I don't want you to spend a lot of money. I don't want you to go bankrupt. I, I want you to be pragmatic. I, I, I don't want you to worry about me. And the thing he always told us was, don't worry about me. I won't be there. Uh, <laughs> right. Like yeah. he, he, he says, it doesn't matter where you bury me because I'm not going to be there. Yeah. And um, my mother and I had the task of, of burying him. Uh, I got there before my sister got there and we had to find the plot. We had to get the plot. We had to get the coffin. We had to get everything. And the, the funeral director, um, who was, who was walking us through this was a member of my mom's church and she knew him. And it, it, I mean, that was, I suppose the best way you can be the funeral director and the mechanic that you go to Sunday school with are the ones <laughs> that, that you want to trust. Yeah. But, uh, and my mother was blessed in both cases. 
But anyway, <laughs> so he was walking us through this, and and we were looking at the coffin, and and he was being very genteel in his southern ways, like, okay, all right, so so what what kind of coffin would you want? And my mom said, well, you know, he he just always said, just throw me in a pine box, and in all sincerity, this guy looked, okay, we have that, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yes. And they had an elaborate pine box coffin that wasn't exactly what my father had thought of. And I I can't remember exactly how much we paid for it, but we paid for that because my mom and I just looked at each other and cracked up laughing and said, okay, that's the pine box. Yeah. It's what he said he always wanted. That's what he he said. Yeah. And uh, that's marvelous. Damn, if that didn't crack up everybody at the service. Uh, It was for us. It wasn't for him. It was for the mourners. And it was a wonderful, beautiful, personal joke for all of us. Not even a joke. It was just this wonderful thing that we could all do. And that was the function of the funeral. I I, I thought of that exactly as as I was reading Montaigne, because that, that was how he was thinking about death and dying. It's not for me. It's for who I'm leaving behind. It's, mm-hmm. it's not about me in this moment. It's about everybody else. Um, what a wonderful way of thinking about it. And, and he, he even says, why worry about death? Uh, I'm not going to be there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I won't experience it. <laughs> I'll yeah. experience the illness, but I won't experience the death. So, why bother worrying about it? You right. you can worry about pain, I suppose, but yeah. do those things that minimize pain, do those things that maximize pleasure, and middle road, you're good. Yeah, the, the, the Epicurean approach to death. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's that's the thing that I, I kept coming back to. There were moments of this that that reminded me so much of Hamlet. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the thing I think Matt was, was talking about was Shakespeare definitely read Montaigne in the Florio translation and parts of it come back to Hamlet. But that's one of the things that Hamlet keeps saying, or it, it's that speech he has in the fifth act, which I always come back to. I try to teach it to 17 year olds and they never quite get it. But um, if it is to be, tis not now. If it's mm-hmm. now, it's not to come. Since no man knows what he leaves, what is it to leave before time? You know, Um, what does it matter if we don't even fully understand what this experience is? And I'm misquoting (laughs) Hamlet because it's late at night and I'm exhausted. I I just want to make sure nobody knows. I think think that's that's an excellent way to leave off uh, part one of of Montaigne. Yeah. what is it that existence is? Well, we can only know what we know of it and whatever we can't know. Eh, let someone else sort it out. <laughs> on the one hand, on the other. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't even talk about instance. He has a great, uh, if anyone wants to, okay, I hope, one of our listeners uh, goes through <laughs> and he does a great, um, you know, uh, whole essay on impotence and uh, how imagination overpowers us and that we're not completely at our own wills. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a wonderful essay. I think Montaigne, we were talking about this beforehand. Montaigne has been 
sort of rightly trounced for being a misogynist, yes, he's a product of his time and good for trouncing him. Yes. Uh, but there's this way in which his admission that our bodies are not under our control is this sort of humanizing factor and it levels some of those differentiations between the genders as lack of control over the gender is right. the charge that's often leveled at women. And he basically says, hey, look, can you always get it up? Can you always <laughs> stop yourself from farting? No. Yeah. And there's this way in which I, Matt was was saying that he inserts the scatological not for the sake of getting Koreans, a, a cheap, yeah. Yeah, or, or yeah. getting a cheap joke out of the the scatological, but as a way of understanding our interactions with our bodies and with ourselves in this way that I think anticipates the twentieth and or twenty first century. But yeah, absolutely. But anyway, have we exhausted this? <laughs> I think. Well, if nothing else, we've exhausted each other, and it's late at night. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think this is a, this is a great start off though for talking about more more Montaigne and yeah, you know, hey, and let us know everybody, you know, send us some emails. We've gotten some some pretty great uh, fan emails. We actually do read them. Uh, it's yeah. it's actually very touching that you take time out of your day to to shoot us an email about how the show made you feel or or what it, you know made you think of. Um, I mean, if, if if you're feeling Montaigne like we are, let us know if you think he's just full of malarkey and we shouldn't deal with it. Well. <laughs> Tough luck because we've read a lot of Montaigne, so you have to listen to a lot of Montaigne. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, we we've gotten a couple of emails, and if anything, we've gotten at least two people to read Dante, which is and that's more, awesome. That's more than I've ever done in sixteen years of teaching. Yeah, and I've assigned the damn thing. Um, but anyway, yeah. So you can you can find us. Uh, I, I've got the the blog more or less up and going. It's at the Cannonball Podcast. That's C A N O N B A L L Podcast. Dot uh, WordPress. Dot blog. I think that's the address. Um, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. And if you want to interact, you know, just drop us a line. We're good. Yeah. So. <laughs> have we ended in a montanian enough fashion well do it don't do it what do i know <laughs> <laughs> and and we'll see you next time <laughs>